Well, as we continue to examine 1 Corinthians, we come this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll read verses 2 through 16. First Corinthians 11, starting at verse 2 and reading through verse 16. Again, this is the Lord's word as he gave to the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Corinth. Today we read about the topic of a proper order of authority in a Christian household mainly. But there are some peripheral things that are particularly pertinent to the, the cultural context in which we find ourselves, much as they were also pertinent to the cultural context of the Corinthians. So we read this morning now God's holy word, inspired by him, therefore inerrant, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. (coughs) For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? (coughs) Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Let's briefly pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray now that as it is read and proclaimed, as it is exposited this morning, that you might bless also its hearing, that it would take root in our hearts, that we might be transformed and thereby conformed more to the image of Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, when most read this passage that we just read, they tend to fixate on the question of whether or not God requires women to wear head coverings. Some believe Paul is requiring head coverings for women at all times, except uh, in private at home or with her husband. Others that the requirement is for worship only. Indeed, that has been the general custom for most of church history. Uh, Still others look at verse 15 and determine that the woman's hair is her covering, and so she is already 
covered. Uh, however, that interpretation, of course, others will point out, makes verse 6 look awkward, in which God, Paul implies that a, woman, a woman's head should be covered unless her hair is either cut short or completely shaved off. And, of course, we see that the point there, though, uh, is that the hair, in some way, is the glory of a woman and her husband, and if she's giving glory to God, the thought would be somehow to cover it. Now, the main disagreement, though, is over whether Paul is speaking to a particular cultural context, or is he making a universal requirement for the church in all ages? Uh, We, as the RP Church, take no official position on this, uh, but leave it up to the particular determination of women and their husbands. (coughs) It's a matter of personal conviction and individual piety. We neither command nor forbid the practice. Of course, that said, such a position obviously leans toward the view that this was more a cultural matter in Paul's day than it is a requirement for us in all times and places. As we tend to see it as a matter of personal piety, though, we don't see the differing positions as something that would be like a matter rising to something like the level of determining what is a biblical Uh, element of worship, things like that. But I think the focus on the argument over whether a woman is required to wear a head covering or not, and and when she would need to, uh, actually might miss the main point of what Paul is talking about here and why he brings that issue up as an example. Sound commentators who take very different positions on whether women should wear head coverings and when Uh, will point out, they all agree, that the main matter in question is that of proper order. The main point of this passage is that there is a proper order to things, particularly pertaining to authority, and especially authority in the household. God is the head of all things, and he submits to no one. Christ, in his mission and in his human nature, submits to God. Men must submit to Christ. Women, in submitting to Christ, must also submit to to their husbands. The question of head coverings comes in the context of this question of submission to that proper order. Whether we believe that Paul is giving an example from a particular historical and cultural context, or that he is offering a universal and timeless instruction for all Christians, uh, is uh, is that the proper point, or the main point, is that the, the order of things is reflected to some extent, in the way that people dress and behave. And this is a lesson that's particularly pertinent for our cultural context, much as it was for the Corinthian cultural context. Christians must not dress or behave in such a way as to appear to be flouting or undermining the God-ordained order of things. Now let's dive into the passage, and I think these facts will become more clear. We see the main point in verse 3. There is a proper order to things. Uh, Prior to that, in verse 2, Paul commends the Corinthian Christians for having kept the practices about which he has already taught them. Uh, And he's using that, by the way, I think, also as a springboard for his next topic, as we'll see later, uh, Lord willing, uh, when he does not commend them and how they have handled the Lord's Supper. But here he commends them. He says, I praise you. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, 
and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So in many ways, they're doing a good job of keeping the traditions Paul has delivered to them. But then in verse 3, with the words, but I want you to know, he indicates that he is about to tell them something that perhaps he hasn't actually uh, explained to them before. He writes, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So we see there's a proper order there, particularly to authority structures, and particularly as authority is carried out in a Christian household. Indeed, this really applies to the whole human race, but Christians especially must make an effort to reflect this proper order in our relationships. So let's consider the proper order by beginning at the top. God, of course, is at the top, right? He is the head of all things. He has no obligation to submit to anyone. It would be improper for him to submit to anyone. Paul says in verse 12, all things are from God. So we see that all things are from the Lord. He is the highest authority. And he says, the head of Christ is God at the end of verse 3. So clearly that doesn't need a lot of explanation. God is head over all things. Number two, we find proper order is Christ himself. Christ is God, and his divine essence is co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But he also volunteered to submit himself. And he took on a human nature, John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And of course, in his human nature, he's under God. Christ is above all things except God, particularly after fulfilling his mission. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, and he, that is God in that context, put all things under his, Christ's, feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he's the head over all things, and also We see there his mediatorial kingship. He is given as the head over all things to the church. What a gift that is. We'll talk more about that, Lord willing, this evening. But Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But even though in his essence as God, he is over all things and co-equal with the Father and the Spirit eternally, the Son of God determined to submit. He covenanted to take that form of the servant. As Philippians 2, 6-8 says of Christ, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. There was nothing wrong with him being equal with God. He didn't submit because he decided, oh, I don't deserve to be here at this station, right? He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself, Paul says, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's something he covenanted to do from all eternity, and so he is is called in Revelation 13.8, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, not just the lamb slain when he came into history at a particular point, but from the foundation of the world, he is the lamb slain for his people. 
Now think about that. One of the co-equal persons of the Godhead determined to submit and take the form of a servant. Did that diminish his glory or his dignity at all as God? Not in the least. It did not. And indeed, it gave more glory to him in the long run. When you and I submit to a proper order that God has ordained, it in no way diminishes the dignity each of us possesses as being made in the image of God. If I submit to the church courts, or I submit to the government, except when they're commanding evil, right? if I'm submitting properly to the government, that in no way makes me less human or less dignified than the people serving in government to whom I'm submitting. If I'm serving in the military and I take orders from my superior officers, and I submit to those orders, that doesn't make me less the image of God than the commanding officer. Christ is not worth less than the Father simply because he submitted. But he voluntarily submitted himself. And of course that was for our good as well as his glory. And Christ in his human nature is under God. That he's above all things except God. Three, man is under Christ. In verse three, the head of every man is Christ. The word Paul uses for man there is the word particularly for an adult human male. Uh, You don't have to be a biologist, by the way, to know that that's what the word man means in a context like this, or that woman is an adult human female. Indeed, it's the word also used for husband in Greek. And so we're talking about household order. The head of every husband is Christ. That Christ is the head of every man is, of course, a fact for, for all and particularly Christian men must be aware of it. But it's, it's the proper order of authority in every household, but especially Christians must be aware of it. Think of it in this way. Had Adam not failed and fallen, he would still be the head of the whole human family. And all authority under God, uh, all authority structures under God, would derive from Adam's authority as the head of our family. Now, Christ has succeeded where Adam failed. God is making a new humanity in Christ. Romans 13.1 teaches there is no authority except from God. So all authority derives from Christ. In Ephesians 1.22, we find that Christ is the head over all things, as we just read a few minutes ago. As Jesus says in Matthew 28.18, all authority in heaven and on earth, not some authority in some places, or not all authority in a few places, but all authority everywhere, has been given to me. All of mankind and all human authority structures have a duty to submit to Jesus Christ. And therefore, all men who had a household have a special responsibility to submit to Christ. And Christian men must model this. Paul offers an example of showing such submission even by the way a man dresses in this passage. In verse 4, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Now, to understand what's going on here, we need to know a bit about the historical and cultural context. Remember in Corinth, a particular problem regarding public morality was that prostitution was a widespread and generally accepted sin. Prostitutes in Corinth, it seemed, often went around with their heads uncovered. 
modest women, especially married women, would cover their heads to say, that's not what I am. I'm not engaging in that profession. Particularly when they were in public. This would show that they were in a committed marriage to one man in particular. And in that culture, the head covering was a public statement. It was a sign of a woman's submission to her own husband's authority. A man praying or prophesying in public with his head covered would seem to be dressing like a woman. I think the reason that some might have wanted to cover their heads uh, was that often the pagan priests put a head covering on as they made their sacrifices. But in verse 7, Paul writes, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. Simon Kistemacher helps explain this a bit in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. He writes, we, we should realize that dress codes vary from culture to culture and from age to age. The city of Corinth had a mixed population of Greeks, Romans, Jews, and a number of people of other nationalities. When Paul discusses hairstyles and head coverings, we have to keep in mind that he was telling his readers to adopt Christian practices in a pagan world. Paul objected to the blurring of genders, but wanted the Corinthians to demonstrate visually the clear distinction between men and women. And so verse 14, Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? He's not appealing there to some standard of hair length. He can't look at the law of Moses and say, God said your hair will be so many inches long and no longer, or something like that. There's no such law ever given in Scripture. But what he's saying here is nature tells us that it looks weird if a man has a hairstyle that looks more womanly. The point here then is that a man must not appear to be dressing like or affecting the mannerisms and behavior of a woman. If a man seemed to be dressing or acting like a woman, he would be shirking his God-ordained male role. And to do that is to rebel against Christ who is to be the head, and in fact is, the head of every man. Next in the order comes woman. Paul says the head of woman is man. Now we need to to note, in the Greek language of Paul's day, there was no indefinite article. There were definite articles, so there was the equivalent of our word the, but there was no equivalent of our words a and an in the Greek language. Uh, So sometimes we just have to supply that for something to make sense in our language. So we could fairly read this as the head of a woman is a man. In fact, that would make more sense in the broader New Testament context because uh, we know that women are not supposed to submit to every man, and we'll get into this here, but to their particular husbands. If uh, it's not that every man is the head of every woman, That would be chaos. Rather, we have in view here the marital relationship and authority structure. Remember, again, this is not about superiority versus inferiority. This isn't about dignity as a human being. Christ is not inferior to the Father in his divine nature, but he submitted voluntarily. And if he had not, we would be without hope. A woman submitting to her husband does not render 
her inferior or less dignified than her husband. In many cases, it probably makes her more dignified than her husband. But instead, it honors Christ, who created us and who himself submitted. He created the family order, who himself submitted to God in, the, in God's ordained order of things. Ephesians 5, 22 through 23 tells us, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Notice in particular the word own there. That's really important. Wives, submit to your own husbands. It's not a general submission of women to all men. So this is not saying, in general, men are superior to women. No, that's not at all what the Scripture is teaching here. That would be chaos, of course, again, if, if all women submitted to all men. As a pastor friend of mine once said, my, my wife has no obligation to submit to a man in line with her at the grocery store simply because he's a man. Her obligation is to submit to me as her husband. In fact, if my wife submitted herself to other men in general, not because they were exercising legitimate authority in government or as an elder in the church or something, she would actually be betraying her responsibility to submit to her own husband. By the way, if if we were expositing Ephesians 5, uh, we would also see that the husband's leadership is not an iron fist or a boot on the neck of his wife. It is to be a form of servanthood and self-sacrifice. So this, again, is not about superiority and inferiority, but just about a God-ordained order to things. A married woman is to submit to her own husband. We, we need to note, as Calvin points out, that this in no way overrides the fact that in places like Galatians 3.28, Paul teaches that women and men who are believers are equal in spiritual status before God. And it doesn't undo that if a woman rightly submits to her husband. Uh, could you imagine if one of my little girls, Lord willing, in, in years to come... I will hear them profess faith in Christ. And they'll become, I pray, communicant members of the church. And when that happens, can you imagine my 9 or 10 year old daughter then saying to me, well dad, now in Christ there is no male or female. In Christ these authority structures make no difference. We're equal in Christ. You can't tell me what to do anymore. <clears throat> No, that's not how that... In, in terms of earthly authority structures, we have authorities that we are to submit to, each one of us. And so in this context, a woman rightly submits to Christ by godly submission to her husband, which, as with submission to all other human authority, is qualified by God's law. Uh, no one has obligation to submit to sin, no matter who is commanding it. But such proper submission of a woman to her husband is displayed... Even by the way she dresses, Paul says. Verse 5, But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Now some think this is talking about public worship, since in chapter 14 Paul discusses prophesying during worship. However, I find that hard to swallow, since in the context of worship, Paul's quite clear, uh, teaches in 1 Timothy 2.12 that a woman is not to give instruction to men, so this isn't a context of public worship. Rather, 
uh, this being the context of worship here in 1 Corinthians 11, I think Paul is talking about women participating in the Great Commission, praying and sharing the gospel publicly, speaking forth the word of God. That's really what prophesying means in a public setting, but not in the context of Christian worship, but in the context of sharing God's word with unbelievers. Whenever women appropriately pray, share the gospel, they must do it, as John MacArthur points out, maintaining a proper distinction from men. So in verse 6 he says, For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Notice he says, if there. If it's shameful, not because it's shameful. So that again points to probably a better understanding of this being more about the cultural context. Whatever the commonly understood distinctions are between the sexes, unless maintaining such practices would force us to sin, we should not cross them. The overarching principle is that men should dress like men. They should look and act like men. There are natural differences, and uh, Paul appeals to nature here. He says, doesn't nature even tell us that it's weird when a man tries to look like a woman? That women should dress and look like dress and look and act like women. Even when clothing styles have similarities, there are differences. There was a difference between a man's toga and a woman's dress in ancient Rome. There are differences between a man's trousers and a woman's pants. Those go back to the differences of nature that Paul talks about here because our bodies are different and so our clothes are, or clothing is usually cut different. There's a difference between a masculine short haircut and a feminine short haircut. No matter how short or long the hair is, there's a distinction, isn't there? It's shameful for a man to try to appear like a woman is what Paul is saying here. Or for a woman to try to look like a man. Paul says in verse 7, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. So there uh, seems to be uh, something about, and in fact you can read that as, a wife is the glory of a husband. So this is about giving glory to God by showing that glory through the way that we act He explains in verse 8 and 9, For man is not from woman, but woman from man, nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. This is a reference to Genesis 2, where the first woman was created from the first man's body to be a suitable helper for him. Paul says, For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Boy, has there been some wild speculation about what that means. There's a lot of confusion over that. Uh, the best understanding is simply that holy angels are perfectly submissive to God's authority. And uh, when people undermine authority structures that God has set up, they're greatly offended by the lack of submission shown by Christians. At the end of the passage, he emphasizes that a woman must not try to take a man's role or try to to look like a man. Verses 13 through 16. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? 
Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. We, We see from this a more general principle. Not just that married men and women must be careful to preserve that proper order, but that all men and women must be careful to preserve that natural order which God has created by not trying to look like the other. God is head over all things. He submits to no one, but everything else in the world has a proper order of submission. So second is Christ in his human nature. He's above all but God. He submits perfectly to God. Third in the authority structure of the household is the husband and father. And he must submit to Christ. And then fourth is the wife and mother who submits to Christ. That includes proper submission to her husband. Distinctions between those roles and respect for this authority structure have to be maintained. So no matter what the clothing styles that are in fashion in the age in which we live, no matter what hairstyles are common, there are naturally masculine clothes and hairstyles, nature causes this to be the case. There are naturally feminine clothes and hairstyles. This proceeds from the fact that our bodies, as much as people want to deny this basic biological fact, our bodies are different. Even our face shapes are different. When people uh, these days who are so terribly confused uh, want to try to so-called transition and become the other sex, which they never really will become. And it's such a a deluded thing and a shock that, and frankly dishonest that anyone would ever affirm that. They even will go to the point of having facial reconstruction surgery because a woman's face shape is not the same as a man's face shape and vice versa. Each sex must not seek to adopt the styles, the mannerisms, the dress of the other. To do so is clear rebellion against God who made us. He made us in his image, male and female. Nothing in between. And he did not make a mistake and put you in the wrong body. There's no such thing as a woman trapped in a man's body or vice versa. He did not make a mistake. He did not make a mistake by creating the sexes and making us distinctly binary. People will raise the issue and say that, oh, well, aren't there some genetic problems that cause people to be uh, intersex? Something in between. You have the supposed XXY chromosomes instead of just an X and a Y in some people. Well, in fact, what you have is damaged chromosomes in those cases. And we know, as I heard one speaker rightly point out not long ago, that that's, that's a disorder. We know that there's something wrong there because we are binary as a species. If you saw someone uh, who was missing a leg, you would know that he should be binary in legs, right? And that if he's missing a leg, something went wrong. Or if somebody seems to have a partial third leg growing from their hip, something went wrong. That's a birth defect, we would say. Because he's supposed to be binary. The same thing is true with us, if there's, we are a binary species in terms of sex, 
And so if there's anything genetically that, that seems to mess with that in a particular person, we know that that's something wrong, something went wrong. Each of us is either male or female. None of us has the right to pretend to be the other. God made us in his image, male and female, so we're undermining the very image of God when we try to undermine that. We are distinct and we're independent. We need each other. That's why God made us different with different qualities. Verses 11 and 12, Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man. So you would almost think that if you'd stopped reading, that earlier he said, well, women were made for men, so women just need to be under men's heels all the time. No. He says, but actually, no, we're not independent of each other whatsoever. We need each other. Because just like the first woman came from the first man, every man who's ever come since then has come from a woman. This is how it works. This is how God made us. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, he says, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. So the the point is that all things be in a proper order to show the glory of God. Let us respect that proper order. Let us glorify God as we seek to serve Him in every area of life, even in the way we dress and behave publicly. Let's pray. Lord, help us to respect the order of things as you have ordained them to be. Let us honor the distinction between male and female as you have created us in the different roles you have given to us to be complementary to one another. Thereby, we might honor the headship of Christ and your headship over all things as we pray in the name of the one whom you have given to be the head of all things to the church. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.